Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. This episode of the Human Experience Podcast is brought to you by Fine Mindfulness. Mindfulness these days is huge. Mass media is starting to understand the benefits of taking time to pause and reflect. Have you ever been interested in mindfulness and meditation? Have you ever wanted to create a practice, but you just fall off track? Well, this is where Fine Mindfulness comes in. They offer a community that will help you create those powerful lasting habits that keep you training your mind. Whether you are the CEO of a Fortune 500 company or a college student running a startup, Find Mindfulness can help you. Find Mindfulness is a 30-day program. How often are you looking at your cell phone? Just ask yourself how often you look at your cell phone and then tell yourself that you need to take this course. Mention the human experience. Go and sign up right now at www.findmindfulness.com. What's up, folks? This is the 50th episode of The Human Experience, and so fitting for our 50th anniversary show. I really wanted to make this special for you guys, so we brought on Mr. Gerald Clark. I truly regard Gerald as one of those types of people who has done an extensive amount of research, and his work really reflects that. I'm sure he would never admit this, but it really feels like he is picking up where Zachariah Sitchin left off. This episode is full of information, and I truly mean that. We got into so much, including who the Anunnaki are, where they come from, what their story is, twin flames, exiting the reality simulator, and more. But you have to ask yourself how our history, mainstream history, has been a complete fabrication. Ask yourself why mainstream culture in esoteric fashion worships these beings through Hollywood, yet academia completely ignores and will not touch this topic. I wonder why that's happening in our world today. So we brought Gerald on to kind of open this up for you guys that don't know about this topic. And about midway through, we switch to his latest book, Seventh Planet Mercury Rising. But again, there's so much information here that it was incredibly difficult to cover within the stretch of a 60 minute conversation. So we will definitely have Gerald on again for around two sooner than later. If you have not registered for our book giveaway on Facebook, please do follow us on Twitter at the human XP subscribe to our YouTube channel. I absolutely recommend that you pick up a copy of Gerald's newest book, the seventh planet Mercury rising. And as always, thank you so much for listening.
The human experience is awakening from and exiting the reality simulation matrix as we speak to my guest, Mr. Gerald Clark. Gerald, my good sir, it's a pleasure. Welcome to HXP. Hey, Xavier, it's really great to be on your show, and I want to say a warm welcome to you and all your guests. So, Gerald, um, thank you for that. You know, we've spent so much time kind of emailing and, and planning this episode out. I'm, I'm very excited to bring your knowledge to our audience tonight. Your latest book, Seventh Planet Mercury Rising, had all of my chakras activated. Your words resonate so much. But let's let's lay the foundation, I mean, for the people that might not know who you are. I mean, in your book, you look at the Anunnaki, which are a race of beings that your research shows had quite a hand in the history of humanity. Briefly, who are they? Where do they come from? Let's let's hear that rant. Well, normally I like to give references as I go through uh, when I'm doing books and, and discussions, and I oftentimes drop a lot of, of those. I'm, I'm going to leave a few of those out tonight, even though they're all they're listed in both my books. And for mo- for those who don't know uh, me, I uh, actually was an electrical engineer for most of my adult career, having spent seven years flying helicopters in the army. And uh, I focused on designing electronic circuits and systems uh, for telecom and broadcast and radio. So I had a lot of communications exposure. And so, you know, it it was a really quite a far stretch for me to end up uh, discovering uh, the truth about the Anunnaki because I was I was kind of raised Southern Baptist. And I was I was I, I, I guess I would say I was somewhat of a fundamentalist right up until the time I got through college. And I, I had my head. Um, somewhat accosted by the liberal um, situation on the campus, but I still had my fundamental beliefs, and I was I was kind of a hardcore military officer, even though I was living in Southern California, you know, doing the hippie thing. So, so who are the Anunnaki, and, how, and why why did I even care about these being an engineer? Well, I was looking into writing a book on ancient history. I bumped into Sitchin's work, among many others. I started with Eric von Doniken. I went, so I read everything I could get to find out about ancient history because I was really interested in writing a book on ancient technology. Mm-hmm. And that actually ended up leading me to the Anunnaki. So let's, let's go to where I started. I was looking for the first language uh, that would give us a clue, the one that we could read. Mm-hmm. And I know there's probably others now, but uh, I started. I ended up landing in uh, Samaria, looking at the cuneiform tablets, which many people have done. They've been around for. We found them turn of the century, and there's thousands, tens of thousands of them. Uh, we didn't. We weren't able to read them until you know 50 years later, <laughs> and then you know the time it took for it to leak out through academia into the public. It's really just now becoming something that you can get your hands on. Without without relying on uh, someone's translation, right? So that said, I uh, I looked into uh, some of the translations that were done by various academic academic uh, organizations and publishers. In particular, uh, I really liked Oxford Press out of uh, out of the United Kingdom, and they had done some really great field work in looking at these tablets, and so. I had read all of Sitchin's stuff, but I was still, and and everyone else's too, and I read Anton Park's book and several others. And uh, so I kind of had a, a list of seminal documents that I wanted to lean on to to tell this story. And, and really, a large part of the story was told in what was what's called the Atrahasis. Mm-hmm. And this is a document that's in a Sumerian clay tablet you can go find in your museum. Okay? The other one was the Enuma Elish, because as a scientist, I was always curious about how things worked. 
And this one appeared to have a very scientific telling, uh, which was given to us and told to me by some of Sitchin's work to go look at this, that it, that it had some credible evidence to show how our solar system came to be. So this was the uh, Anunnaki cosmogony, if you will, how, the, how everything came to be. So, you know, every culture's got one of those, but this one was very sophisticated for something written that long ago. So that caught my attention. So between the Atrahasis, the Enuma Elish, and then, of course, the famous uh, literature Epic of Gilgamesh, mm -hmm. it starts to expose us to some of the main players that the Sumerians said were their gods, who uh, they portrayed as not only larger than they were, brilliant, and also uh, extraterrestrial. They, they were not from planet Earth. And they had a lot of writings to describe where they thought these beings were from, the technology they gave them, and, and everything that they had, they accredited to the Anunnaki that shared it with them. So, you know, here's this old story of uh, 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 aliens, you know, giving mankind barbarians uh, civilizing technology or knowledge, and that appears to be what the Sumerians believed, and that's what they wrote about. So, for most of the history of, uh, of the archaeological community, they treated this as a myth. As a matter of fact, the book that I referenced primarily in the Atrahasis was called the myth from Mesopotamia, right? <laughs> so, you know, whenever you have a cultural belief system and, you, and they're not the victor, they, what they believe is a myth. Right. So one of the brave heroes uh, actually looked at this, and his paradigm was that, well, maybe what they said is true, and let's try to make sense of this. And that's what Sitchin did, in my opinion. And, you know, did he get everything right? No, but, <laughs> but he, sure had, he sure bit off a lot to try to make sense of the whole picture for everybody. It really seems like you are carrying on Sitchin's work. I mean, it, his legacy. I mean, it really seems like you're picking up from that. And in this book, it's, it's the most vast account of everything Anunnaki that I've ever read. Well, I, I actually never attempted or wanted to be portrayed as somebody carrying his torch. I just saw that, you know, he gave references for all his work, so you could go and look those up, you know, like any good scholar. So, so I looked up some of his references, and like I said, I, I really, to tell this story tonight, in order to give the pricey version for someone who hasn't heard the story, mm -hmm. I, I want to I just reemphasize those three documents, because they introduce these main players. And in my genealogy table that I've published on my Facebook page, it's uh, digital and in a vinyl scroll that you can get on my website, it talks about these main players. And I want to just introduce a few of them just real quickly because they're going to get used in this discussion so we don't get lost. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Right. So let, let's start with uh, the father figure who was called Anu. Um, he was apparently the king uh, at the time that uh, his kid, one of his kids came to Earth. He was the king of uh, his home planet. Some call it Planet X, some call it Nibiru, some call it lots of other names. And actually, in the, epic, or the Babylonian Epic of Creation, one of his uh, grandkids, Marduk, renamed the planet after himself, called it Marduk. So. But what we, what we basically understand is that Anu was the king. He had a, a son named Enki. He was his firstborn with his, with his wife, Antu. Um, he was very scientific, uh, very, uh, uh, very, very capable, okay? And uh, he had a half-brother uh, named Enlil. He was the son of Anu and his half-sister, Ki, or, or Rash is another name for her if you look at the table, okay? Uh, another key player that was also the offspring of Anu was Nan or, uh, Ninma, or uh, she had several names. We'll just call her Ninma for now. Mm -hmm. In Egypt, she was known as Isis, okay? And then we had uh, 
some of the kids of Anki, and we kind of call those Ankiites. <laughs> and, you know, and then you had the sons of Enlil, and we called those Enlilites. Well, it's kind of an easy way to group them together, but because these two were the top um, sons of Anu, one of them, the firstborn, according to their inheritance law, was not given the right to rule. You had to be born of the father and his half-sister in order to have that, have that right. So even though Enki was firstborn, he didn't have the inheritance right, whereas his brother did. So Enlil was kind of a bureaucrat commander type. Okay, So you can kind of get, as we're building these characters to tell a story, you kind of get an idea of what's going on. Right. And then we'll introduce uh, Ninshida and Inanna and Marduk and Ninurta. These are some of the kids of Enki and Enlil. Okay? Mm -hmm. So... So what happened? Uh, according to uh, the prehistory on their planet, uh, there were problems because their, their um, planet, and their planet was part of a small solar system. Apparently they had their own sun, and there's several uh, satellites around that sun. Could be up to seven if you read the Enuma Elish, and, and where it talks about <laughs> this account. Okay, So in this account, um, their planet and their solar system were caught into our solar system's orbit, um, probably through some galactic intermingling of their galaxy with ours, or through a perturbation in space going through the galactic center and causing some major perturbations. I mean, it's like billiard balls flying around in space in some circumstances, and things happen. Right. Well, according to this account, uh, their, their planet and their solar system were caught into our solar system's orbit, and that they experienced a elliptical retrograde orbit that lasted 3,600 years. And this is what's recorded in the Sumerian accounts. And they told their Sumerian kings list terms in terms of the, the time period in which this was specified as a shar. Okay? Okay. So, so many, many shars ago on Nibiru, they were having problems with their atmosphere as, they come, as their planet and their whole system came into close perihelion with the sun. So as it came close, they're getting all this outside radiation, not only just from their sun, but the interactions of their sun with our sun, and it was causing devastation to their atmosphere and their life forms on their planet. So every 3,600 years, they had this uh, repeating problem where they had to do something about it. And apparently, they had been seeding their atmosphere with ionizing uh, substances like the transition metals in order to shield this. And, and now think about this. If you keep doing this and keep doing this, every time you go through the interstellar system, this whole uh, artificial ionosphere or atmosphere that you've created gets, gets impacted by objects and gravitational pull and all kinds of things. So you end up having to redo this over and over. Right. right? So they had a basic need for a transition metal that didn't degrade so readily and that they could ionize and put in their atmosphere to shield this radiation. Okay, so this is the story of why they came to the Earth was partly for this reason is because there were quantities of both monoatomic mono and um, mineable gold that they could take and ionize and put in their atmosphere. Okay, so uh, so th for this reason um, they they came to the Earth. Uh, there was a long story about a usurpation, a little wrestling match, a, ki a king being replaced, and ultimately. Anu ended up as king. His son Enki, the scientist, was dispatched to the Earth approximately 450,000 years ago, according to their records. And you can count backwards on the Sumerian kings list and see how many kings were in the first um, rulership before uh, the flood. The flood came. That's a, the flood that they account for. Now, we don't believe it. It was Noah's flood, but it was it was a flood. It right. Comes out to 240 something thousand years. Okay. Well, if you add the whole king's list up, it comes out to oh, practically the time frame of 450,000 years that we're talking about here. So there's a record of kings who actually seems to coincide with this story. 
Okay? As hard as it is to believe. So, the sun comes to the earth. His name's Anki. He lands in the Persian Gulf for some reason, maybe because they've done spectroscopy. They know where fuel and petrol resources are and all the resources that they might need to uh, set up an outpost and get what they need. Okay? And, by the way, I don't think the earth was the first place they ever did this kind of prospecting and seeding civilization. Okay? So, keep that in mind as we're telling the story, even though we find it shocking. So in the Persian Gulf, right where uh, the Tigris and Euphrates enter into the Sea of Reeds, into that area, is where, according to him, they set up their first city along with about 50 helpers, which he referred to as the Ajiji. So the Ajiji uh, apparently were a, a set of helpers that came with Anki, and according to the records, there about 50 of them initially. They landed, built the city of Eridu, tried to prospect for gold in the Persian Gulf, monoatomically is what their initial plan was. And you have to realize, if it was already in a monoatomic form, you could use basic acids and chemistry to get this <clears throat> this talcum-like powder substance back out. And they already had it processed, but so you didn't have to go through some smelting process to get this ionization that they wanted. So I think that was their original plan. Uh, they didn't get it fast enough. Anu on uh, Nibiru got impatient, and about 5,000 years later, dispatched his uh, second-born son, en Enlil, who was like a commander, to kind of take over some of the functions and to push the process along because it was taking too long. Okay, You have to realize uh, <clears throat> we don't know exactly where in their orbit they were inbound to perihelion or just going outbound and they just experienced this damage, but it was so devastating they were thinking of respawning their volcanoes to artificially put something in the atmosphere to shield them because it was so bad. Hmm. Okay, so Anki's down in the, the Persian Gulf. His dad is impatient, sends his half-brother who he can't really stand. It turns out they don't get along at all. And they end up competing for the same title, the Lord of the Earth, and uh, they ended up getting split up. One got the Lord of the Waters and one of the Lord of the Air. But Enlil was in line to rule because he uh, was born of the half-sister. So he ended up asserting himself uh, and ended up following Enki down to Africa where he thought he could get gold faster and had a, an, a fortress set up there kind of being a bureaucrat. They ended up casting lots because the, the father realized that they couldn't possibly be in the same domain or same territory and get along. And this is in the Atrahasis. They cast lots and chose territories. Mm -hmm. Enki got Africa. Enlil got Mesopotamia. Uh, Inanna got the Indus Valley. And Ninma, who was known as Isis, got the Bond Heaven Earth area up on the Sinai Peninsula as hers. Okay, even though Enlil treated it pretty much as his own. Uh, this was a, these were the facilities that they had set up in the pre-Diluvian cities that you can see in southern Iraq that they were using to go back and forth into Beru and trans, transport the, the, the ore, whether it was already processed or not, back to their planet. Okay? So we had some major cities in southern Iraq that were associated with this original building of the city of Eridu. Now, keep in mind, it was the first one, and this is Anki's, and he had temples there. Okay? Probably the oldest city that we know of on this planet. Mm -hmm. All right. So now they're down in Africa. They've found uh, gold in the southeastern part along the Zambezi River. And Enki sets up an operation down there. And there, some of these Ajiji are, who had been digging canals and doing irrigation work up in Mesopotamia are now brought down to Africa to do mining. And at that point, it looks like when Enlil came, he brought some more because they had close to what looks like at least 200, maybe up to as many as 600 of them, okay? They'd been working in these mines for a very long time. In the Atrahasis, it says they'd been working 
digging for approximately a SAR or more. Well, a SAR was 3,600 years, as we, we just said. So imagine, the, imagine the brutal work they were undergoing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so at this point, uh, they'd had enough and, uh, and, and decided, you know what, uh, we, just, we can't do this. This work is too hard. It's, it's, it's too much. And they were complaining, and, and Enlil was hearing about it, and so are some of the other higher-level Anunnaki who, who apparently composed a 12-person council that ran everything. And these are, the, these are the beings that show up in the seminal documents, you know, the characters, the ones that show up in the Enuma Elish, the ones that show up in the Atrahasis, and the same ones that show up in the Epic of Gilgamesh. And it almost covers all of them there, actually. The main players. There's now. Listen, they had lots of kids and things like that, but I'm just going to focus on the main ones, right? Okay. So, we get to South Africa. The Ajiji have had it. Uh, one of their fellow gods, as he's called, his name is Allah. Rabble rouses him to mutiny against uh, the command of Anlok. For some reason, he's down there, you know, giving com- the commands, even though this is Enki's territory. All of Africa was Enki's. So, in the account, they surround his house. R- r- uh, with Allah leading them, they burned all their tools. They took their weapons up against Enlil and his uh, and his gate guard, and they they said, "We want relief," and that's it. Well, Enlil sent his uh, his people out to find out what was going on. His gate guard, Nusku, um, basically they co- convey the message to him, and he decides uh, that they need to call in some help. So he calls in uh, Enki, his father Anu, and I believe a couple other ones were there. Okay, Ninma was there. And they were discussing, what do we do about this? Well, and then uh, Enlil says, well, let me just kill one. We'll put, get him back to work. And Enki <laughs> and his father, Anu, said, no, I don't think so. Their, their, their claims are valid here. You know, we need to do something. And so you kind of get the character of what Enlil's like right from the beginning. You know, his bureaucratic commander, uh, t- tyrannical beatdown, this is the kind of guy he appears to be. And Enki's more of like a creative scientist type, so he's probably not really great at these uh, human issues in terms of management and running those kind of operations. He's more about creation from what I can tell. Okay, so they're, so they're at odds. Um, Anu says, no, nope, they need relief, and Enki agrees, and, and uh, eventually Enki and his half-sister Ninma, who turns out to be the medical officer, get volunteered to go do some genetic experiments to create a primitive worker to replace these Ajiji miners. Now, at this point, we could have a long discussion about meat versus tools and which one under these circumstances, would be the most effective at their operations. Okay. Keeping in mind, they've already used the Ajiji for 3,600 years uh, before, so they're, they're kind of into using biology to do their work, even though they probably, at some point, would introduce more high technical tools. But uh, under the circumstances, for some reason, they didn't seem to have major excavations and things like that, like, nor factories or anything else. So, so these beings are incredibly advanced. I mean, genetically, they're they're altering genetics of the beings that are the primitive beings that are already on this planet. That the Ajiji workers are pissed. They need a solution. They find this sort of primitive race. Us. I mean, is that where we start? Is that where we kind of enter this this story? Well, yeah, um, and I'll kind of give you a little bit of a. a, a a primer, and that there was a collision account with uh, one of the um, satellites of Nibiru uh, or its sun with uh, a planet called Tiamat that actually was in the position of where the Earth is now. So that they believe there were some unintentional panspermia that went on, so some of the seeds of life got shared on this planet that were also in, resident on Nibiru. And that's one of the reasons they, they had a particular interest here, according to some of the writings, okay? 
So when they saw bipedal hominids in the southern steppes of Africa that Lewis and Leakey had described, you know, all the way back to Australopithecus africanus, Lucy, and many, many other bipedal hominids, all the way up through Neanderthal, um, we, the, the Denisovians that came out a couple of years ago that I discussed with George Norrie on Coast to Coast, you know, 400,000-year-old and still Neanderthal. So they, make, they apparently got this mission to go create a primitive worker through genetic experimentation. They started with animals and various chimeras, according to their account. Most of them were not successful. Then they finally gave up on the animal types and decided to use a female zygote from one of the bipedal hominids, which we believe was Neanderthal, and then mixed the actual uh, reproductive material from Enki himself with it in, you know, in a petri dish, essentially. That's how it's described in the Atrahasis. Then it's in vitro, fertili in vitro fertilized and put into uh, Nin Hartzog, who's called Ninma also, who turns out to be Enki's half-sister. And she's the medical officer, okay? So she's, it's, it would make sense that she'd be involved in something like this. They messed around. They didn't get it right. And they finally produced a being that they considered worthy. And after studying it for a while, they realized uh, this being could not procreate. Kind of like mixing a horse with a mule is you get something that's sterile. Mm -hmm. Okay? Well, that's where the next person comes in who was Enki's other premier son, and he wasn't he was discussed in the epic of or the Enuma Elish uh, as being affiliated with the planet Gaga, which turns out to be or Mumu, which turns out to be Mercury. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Mercury is the other name for this being who's Ningshida. Well he was known as Thoth and Mercury, Hermes, a whole bunch of other names. And we get into I don't want to get you confused with that. But he was a geneticist as well. And he ends up carrying the caduceus, this genetic sign of the intertwining of two uh, the double helix of DNA, right? That's part of what that means is, you know, these guys, and that's why it still shows up with the AMA and in, in, in healthcare-related facilities that had to do with healing and health. Well, th these guys were hardcore. They added all the way down to the genetics, right? Kind of like what we can do now. He comes in, looks at the problem, studies it off in an African lab and decides what needs to be done in the chromosomally so that these beings have an X and Y chromosome, the reproductive chromosome, so that they could, they could produce offspring. Okay, and this is where it gets very controversial. According to the, the accounts, the, these two beings, the first a male and then a female, uh, but now that they've had the uh, upgrade, the genetic upgrade, they're taken up to Eridu, where Enki's temple was and his garden, where you get the uh, Genesis story about the Garden of Eden, right? Where uh, God comes in the garden, um, tells them not to, not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, else they'll die. Those are the exact words out of the Bible, right? That they'll die if they eat this. Mm -hmm. Well, somehow they get convinced that they were told, no, you wouldn't die by this other being who was represented by a snake or these, this serpent symbol of the Caduceus, right? <laughs> Actually, Enki was the one who was the geneticist carrying the symbol before he gave it to his son. Okay? So that was one of his symbols. And just, just to give you a, a little heads up where this is going, he became Lord of the Sea, like I told you, who was also known as Poseidon. So all of a sudden, we're talking about Greek names affiliated with Sumerian names for their gods. And this is where it got really, really intense, because when you follow that thread and uncover who these beings really are, it unmasks the whole game. And it gets very scary when you realize what's going on. So... 
Yeah, so now we're back in Mesopotamia. The only place that still belongs to Enki is his area of, of the Eden. The, 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 um, the city of Eridu is in the Garden of, has the Garden of Eden, right? And it also includes a little bit of a plain out there uh, where they grew food. But he had a, a huge garden there, okay? These beings are brought there. Now they're genetically upgraded so that they can procreate. The being Enlil, who's playing God, tells him, don't eat anything here. It's not even his garden. It's not even his city. He's there just observing as a bureaucratic commander, right? And tells him a lie that if you eat this, you'll die. Mm-hmm. Where, and really what it was about, if you talk about knowledge of good and evil, we're talking about access to higher consciousness. As a slave taskmaster, he's not interested in that. He's not interested in you <laughs> raising your consciousness and joining his staff and, or anything else like that. Your right. function is to be working, doing what they told you to do. Slave, it's, it's slavery, period. Right? So, um, Enki comes along and says, uh, no, and this is how he's portrayed in the Hebrew plagiarized version in the, in the Torah. Okay, this is not the true account. If you want the true account, go read the Atrahasis. And the other accounts from Samaria. They predated the Bible by a very long period of time. Okay. So he tells him, no, you'll actually get the, you'll gain the knowledge of good and evil like we have, meaning the Anunnaki, right? Higher consciousness than this low-level root chakra being that they created to barely be above the animals. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, look what happened in the story. They, partic- she, they ate of the fruit or whatever it was from this tree. Right. They both gained self-reflective consciousness that they could compare that they were different than other animals that weren't. <laughs> that were not wearing clothes, and then the beings that they were around that were. So they, so it, this is all symbolic that they raised their consciousness to the point where um, they weren't enslaved, and that's absolutely not what Enlil wanted. Okay, so Enki was defying him basically. Okay, so now which one? Now which when you find out that Enki's semen was mixed with this female zygote of a Neanderthal to create us, you all of a sudden realize uh, he had a vested interest in us probably not being slaves forever, because I think he was a little bit more ethical than that. He was expediently doing what he knew how to do in order to create a workforce, but I don't think he was really completely down with that plan. And that's partly when we get to our constructs, you'll see that. Right. Okay, so waiting around to see if they can have a kid. Everything looks good. Um, now they've eaten the fruit, you know, this original sin, which actually, if you didn't choose to have access to higher consciousness, you've chosen enslavement, and they didn't want that. And I think because of the way they were made, they would always choose higher consciousness, no matter what. We're still doing it today. <laughs> Nothing's changed, right? Okay, so instead of being thrown out of the garden, according to the Bible, it was said, actually, the Adapa was kept by Enki in Eridu and trained as his chief priest. And you'll see that in my second book, in the Adapa tale, where he talks about all the, all the functions he performed in the city of Eridu. Okay? That's the real truth. Now, ask yourself this. In 1973, the University of Chicago went to Iraq, went to Eridu, got some pictures of these bricks sticking out of the sand. They've probably done some secret excavations that none of us really know about. But this, this is one of the most primary, important archaeological sites on the planet and nobody's talking about it right don't you find that odd? don't you find that it's really incredibly odd? odd yeah it's incredible and you can go look at it in google earth and i've published pictures of it and they actually have some of the multi-layered temple complexes that only who knows how far back they go but according to if, if the sumerian writings are correct they go back hundreds of thousands of years so okay so now we got to the garden of eden we got the true story about our genesis we are Anunnaki chimeras. 
period. We're part Hananaki and we're part primitive bipedal hominid, whether it's Neanderthal, Cro-Magnum, or whatever of the umpteen numbers that were here. Okay, And only a geneticist could truly verify this, and I think this has been hidden as well. I've asked over and over to get collaboration with people to get the genetic evidence. And, you know, I, I think um, Brian Forrester and David Childers and some people that have been digging around with these Paracas skulls and asking for the actual testing to be done, I think they're doing some really good work, and I hope we can take this to the next level. So let me, let me let me pause you for a second. Okay, so here here we are with these beings that you know have have now genetically engineered this bipedal hominid that they want to remain suppressed to kind of cure or um, alleviate these AGG workers who were protesting, and now they've given us a chakra system. I mean, do we have a soul with this? I mean, how how are they playing our energy system? with with that's our creation. that's a that's really good that's a really good question um actually one of the details that i left out that i want to go back and tie this into our probability of being an avatar in the early uh, part of the atrahasis tablets where enki decides to he takes this on from the council the council decides oh yeah create a primitive worker that's a good idea and he goes through this whole ritual and he actually ends up taking the life of one of the ajiji and they, he names who it is and takes his essence, his soul, and puts it into this body and animates it to life. I mean, this is like this is like Frankenstein, you know. This is this is him creating the first avatar, which you now realize we're probably all energy that's anim animating a body when you when we really get down deep into this, and we'll talk about that. So so that happened, and keep that in mind. That was in the Atrahasis, so that's absolutely amazing. And to, in my opinion, that's the witnessing the creation of the first avatar. Okay. Really, really bizarre. So the idea that they have that level of command over energy and matter is a matter of science that we don't understand. I'm not saying it's not possible, but it's mind-blowing. Just mind-blowing. Okay? <laughs> so now let's, uh, let's fast forward a little bit. They get out of the garden. They're able to procreate. They start working real, real hard to meet the labor force. God only knows what kind of milestones and Gantt chart symbols they have that have to be met and when, according to how many bodies they need. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they get them down. So they take them back to Africa, and they're working these mines. And uh, this goes on according to the Bible and according to the Sumerian account, which coincide exactly, considering the city of Sharupak, which was um, Ninmah, or Nin Herzog's medical center. It was also the location of a very important being whose name was uh, Atrahasis in the account. His other name was Zia Sudra. And he was also known as Utnapishtim in the Epic of Gilgamesh. These beings seem to change names, you know, every... every. Well, see, the, well, <laughs> well when, we get that, when we get down to this lifespan control and aging and all that, I think it'll make sense to you that if they're living a long, long, long time, Right. They could create a new civilization, a new culture, and introduce themselves as a different entity if they wanted, and you would never know the difference. Right? Hmm. Wow. Okay, so okay. I wanted to finish up this Bible correlation thing, because people seem to like this. And also, you can go read your Bible a little closer now and go look at the Sumerian documents, and it'll make <laughs> a lot more sense to you. Okay, so in the city of Sharupak, where Noah was king, according to the Bible, after 600 years... A flood came, right? Well, now go look at the Sumerian documents, and it's in that exact account in the Atrahasis it says after 600 years of this primitive breeder working program, they had a whole lot of people. Imagine, I mean, the United States has 
300 million after 200 years of its inception. You know, and that's not including all the culling from wars and disease and everything else. Right. That's a lot of folks. Right. We're talking about 600 years here have transpired. And they're trying to meet a labor requirement, so they're trying to produce them probably as quickly as they get them to go. Right? So they had an overpopulation <laughs> so, problem. So it looks like they had a population explosion, and Enlil got really upset about this. He describes it in the tablet where he calls a council meeting and says they're bellowing like bulls. They're drinking out of the puddles like animals out in front of my temple. I can't take anymore. I want them gone. And this is where it gets pretty ugly, okay, uh, realizing that some ancient astronaut who was on a council that gave the go-ahead for us to be created, but also took the authority since he was higher ranking than his brother. He, he was the highest ranking one on Earth, rank 50. The highest rank they had in their sexagesimal system was 60, and Anu held that rank. But he, when they cast lots, I didn't mention that, he went back to Nibiru. So he was not on the Earth. So Enlil ruled, okay? <laughs> he was in charge. And I, and I don't know how much um, they they just blindly followed each other's orders. It sure does not seem like it. It seems like every opportunity Enki had, he tried to subvert his brother. They were they were at war over this planet. Uh, so I call them the Hatfields and McCoys for that reason, when you go back and look at the wars. Okay, so after 600 years, Enel had enough, calls the council meeting, says, I want him gone, and he gets his way. And he starts introducing intentional diseases to call the population. Sarupur disease, Asaku disease, and then he introduces uh, a famine, cuts off the food, cuts off the water, uh, does everything he can to destroy these people. And after six years of that, they were eating each other. And uh, maybe he was happy with that, but apparently he wasn't completely happy because at that right at that point in the Atrahasis, he calls his brother Enki over and says, "I want you to bring a flood, open the waters of the deep, uh, take off the belt that binds the the deep seas, and release it. I want them all all gone." And they swore an oath uh, that that uh, they would they would do that. Well, Enki didn't go down with that. He he said no, and so somehow the flood came anyway. So I think. Probably what was going on, and a lot of people believe this, is that as they knew the, the orbital passage of Nibiru caused great perturbations on the planet, the watery planet Earth, and they oftentimes had floods. And this is recorded in the Egyptian history, major floods and minor floods, lots of them. Okay, it wasn't just one Noah flood, there were lots of them. So they probably knew this and swore an oath not to uh, tell the humans or anyone else that this was happening. According to their records, that's what they did. And Enki broke that oath in a legalistic kind of way, by going to his son, the king of Shurupak, Noah was his son, and told him this was coming, build, build a you know, craft and save yourself. And there was a lot more sophistication to it than that. They had planned to save the genetic samples and a seed bank on his craft. He had an Anunnaki navigator put on the vessel with him, told him where to take him. So it wasn't just, you know, some, some uh, bearded mystic dude who got directed to get out at just the time. This was actually the, the chief scientist and the geneticist who created mankind. It was his son he saved. Okay? Right. So, right. and we can tell that Ararat story if you want, but uh, I thought it was quite interesting that he ended up there. The Anunnaki saw the destruction that happened when the flood came, surveying us like little uh, broken sticks piled up in the mud. And, uh, the mother of mankind was very upset about it. Ninma or Nin Herzog was on board that vessel, and she was lambasting Enlil. For, he was the highest one in, in, in charge for allowing this to happen and for swearing everyone to an oath and not doing something to save the workers. You know, so it, you know it's kind of parallel with what's going on right now, as in the days of Noah, right? 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. underground facilities those who you know the movie 2012 have their their little pass to go save their butts while everyone else dies well this is what was going on then so uh, the fact that uh, one of them survived caught Endel's attention he looks down from his craft says we the great Anuna swore an oath uh, no life was survived how did this come to be so they land on Ararat according to their records it did say Ararat <laughs> get out, Enki and Enlil are going at it, and they see a temple that uh, Atrahasis has built there to honor his god, who turns out to be his father, Enki. <laughs> okay, that's where Enlil finds out about it, because Enki finally spills the beans and says, you know what, Who's gonna, we're going to still be here, our mission's not done, who's going who's gonna to grow our food, who's going to do all this manual labor, are you going to do it? And we need them. And uh, Enlil agrees, and somehow, out of the goodwill of his heart, I don't know where it came from, but he decides that uh, Atrahasis is going to have access to the bread of life and the elixir of life, and just, in short, basically gave him access to eternal life. And this kind of takes us down to uh, these questions about lifespans, and I, I hope you've had a chance to look at the Sumerian kings list to see some of their rulership. It's, it's a lot of information, and I just, you know, just to kind of... To everyone who's listening, I mean, this is a lot to absorb, and I mean, it. The, we've just covered a lot of a lot of information. So, and we're just catching up to kind of current events. I mean, we aren't even close yet. So, let's fast forward and get to you know where we are here and now. All of this is covered in your your previous book, Anunnaki of Nibiru. Mm-hmm. But you're, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm looking at the seventh planet Mercury rising, and. In it, Toth was such a huge part. I mean, these emerald tablets that he kind of gave us to counteract this darkness versus light. How does this all plan? I mean, like, why why care about yeah. humanity? Yeah, well, let's, let, let's kind of go from why the second book anyway. Uh, you know, when you get real deep into this first one, you realize if, if, if all the evidence points to the fact that uh, the Anunnaki did what the Sumerians said they did, as hard as it is to swallow uh, that these Anunnaki were the same gods that were shown up in all these other religions, okay? So now you realize uh, the truth when you look into that. So the question comes up, though, is, well, okay, there were a couple of them that seemed to be benefactors. Were they all fallen angels as the right-wing Christians uh, portray them? Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think so. (laughs) They're on the same kind of evolutionary path of their consciousness that you and I are on, and you can see that when you start studying them. They had personalities from serial killers to saints, just like is on this planet. So that shouldn't be a surprise. So I kind of looked at this and said, well, if the Anunnaki created us, that means there's a, there's a creator that's much greater than them. Who is that? And everybody was asking the question, well, if the Anunnaki created man as a genetic experiment, which we could do today, by the way, um, who created them? Right, and how does right. it, you know how does it fit into the bigger picture of what this life means? And it, it brings up really deep questions, and so that's why I wrote the second book. I mean, so I mean, what is the answer to that? So I started looking at uh, all the players that were involved, and I said, well, which ones were kind of our benefactors that had something to teach us that maybe they knew something about the state of reality that we didn't that may give us a clue in order to have a different experience. Okay, and the only two that kind of connected to me, of course, I'm a scientist, were the scientists, and that was Anki and his son, Ningshida. And, you know, uh, Zechariah Sitchin wrote a book called uh, The Lost Book of Anki, where I don't know what access he had to writings to do that. It was a a phenomenal book. But since you didn't have references, it may have just been his accounting of how it all came to be, or he had some special sources he couldn't cite. I don't know. 
Mm-hmm. But either way, that book had already been covered, and I really felt connected to this mission of thought or Ningshita, who was put off into a lab, go study this, give the answer, and never really kind of got much credit. You know what I'm saying? He was the one that made things that were happening behind the scene, but wasn't really in the limelight. Well, it turns out he was the god of wisdom and writing and calendars in Egypt, uh, and and <laughs> you know he was bril- he was brilliant. And uh, so I kind of decided, you know, I want, I want to kind of follow some of his writings and see if I can figure out from his standpoint who he believed the creator of all was, because it was mentioned in some of their writings, and how, this, how the whole reality matrix fits together. Right. And it turns out that I stumbled across uh, some of his writings, and I've read lots of them now. I'm, I've looked into the Egyptian Book of the Dead just recently. That's what I've been studying. But in the, uh, in the account... Especially this account, it, it was it was authored by him, and he claims to have been an Atlantean, Thoth the Atlantean. Well, this is the same Egyptian Thoth who was the god in Egypt. Okay, so no coincidence. Is it a coincidence their names were the same? And I started looking into this, and after studying the Emerald Tablets for many years, I finally decided that they were so much part of what Thoth was trying to teach us about the que- the answer to the question that I was asking for the first book. You know, who created us, and what you know. Where's our manual of what specifies how we're composed, what our limits are, can we do telekinesis, are we endowed with ESP? What are, what are we capable of? We don't know because we've never given a manual, right? Right. And we see these anomalies of these kids all over the world that have various <laughs> capabilities that we don't have, and we're like, well, am I, could I be a metal bender or blah, blah, blah? You know. So the whole idea of this energy and matter interaction place for me was the most important because I was an electrical engineer and that's what I was focused on. So I kind of looked at it from that standpoint and some of the stuff that was coming out in the Emerald Tablets written by Thoth were answering questions about science that science had not even figured out yet. If you could just open your mind and read it from the standpoint that it wasn't a myth. Right. Okay, so from that I actually produced a what I call my holographic model of the universe that comes from him as he describes the multiple dimensions, access to them, capabilities, how an avatar takes on a body, blah, blah, blah. And when you look into something this deep that supposedly was written 50,000 years ago, it's mind-bending. No, it really, really, truly is. I mean, there's, and there's one part of the Emerald tra- Tablets that I want to get into, and I mean, we're... And and this is this is long, and I mean it. There's it takes a lot. Mm-hmm. And we're gonna have to bring you back, but okay. So there's there was there was a part of the tablets where he gives a way to defeat darkness, and he and he talk and you talk in your book. You talk about how he asks you to call upon the specific names that mm-hmm. and kind of send a vibrato- a vibration through your mind, through your body, down to your feet, and then recite these names. Can you can you go through that? Yeah, let's let's do that. I know we're about to run out of time, but w- if we do another show, we'll go all into the energy body, how he describes it. So we got the whole picture, but this is kind of jumping into uh, Emerald Tablet 6 from Chapter 5 of my right. second book, The Seventh mm-hmm. Planet. I love this one. By the way, he talks a lot about how to basically tune into yourself, your vibration, and make it something that you want so you can experience a reality that's different than what you expected. And this is kind of a fundamental basis of out-of-body experience and other energy experiences that come with meditation and other more consciousness-seeking cultures, not like 
one that's focused on materialism. Okay, so so to a materialistic culture, this is all you know, foo foo and a bunch of BS. But to an electrical engineer who can add a math equation to it, no, this is real, and had a pragmatic experience with it. So let's do this. Let, let's let's establish the premise that Thoth indicates that there was a battle of light and dark going on here on this planet when they intervened a very long time ago, prior to the establishment of Atlantis, which uh, goes back more than 50,000 years ago, according to him. And he, he says he had his latest Avatar experience born on the island of Undal in Atlantis. Okay, so he, <laughs> he was from there. And his father, Poseidon, the dweller, was the king. Mm-hmm. Okay, and everybody knows that there was only one god of Atlantis, and that was Poseidon. Well, all of a sudden, this starts to make sense. This is Anki, is Poseidon. Okay, so mm-hmm. Anki and his son Ninchida are over here. They're facing some dark problems. They end up closing a portal, causing a flood. Thoth leaves Atlantis when it's sinking 50,000 years ago, heads to the land of Cam, Egypt, just like his father told him. Okay, well, in these tablets, he starts talking about how to deal with some of these dark forces that get brought into our space. Right. Okay, and this was not something he was a fan of at all. So whoever's using his symbols and making allegations toward darkness and Satanism, let me tell you, you're going to have him to deal with when it all comes down. Okay, so anyway, in Chapter 5, Emerald Tablet 6, he talks about a couple of methods for instantly confronting uh, darkness, whether it's an electromagnetic frequency that's being sent your way in the extreme low frequency from some transmitter of a dark entity, or it's coming from your own mind space, wherever it's coming from, this is a method to deal with it. He first tells you to try to find a vibratory frequency to essentially change your your brainwave frequency to a frequency where you can be relaxed and let this pass. And if that doesn't work, he tells you there's a little help that you can get from uh, seven very important beings who are light beings that are working with him that take up residence in the halls of Amenti. And they're sitting around in this chamber uh, underneath the Giza Pyramid where he describes it. Okay, there's a huge complex underneath the Giza Pyramid that he had ac- that Thoth had access to. And just the Giza complex itself and the Sphinx are only small artifacts on the surface to let you know what's underground, according to him, hmm. which he built. He claims to have built it, okay? So, anyway, he says these seven beings can be addressed directly by somebody who's seeking light in order to uh, really put a barrier around yourself and actually probably bring great harm to the dark forces that are attacking you. And uh, he names them the cycle masters, meaning these are masters who are in charge of different dimensions that are designed to merge those into a future dimension uh, all in one plane according to Thoth. So they're yeah. they're they're cycle coordinators, okay? <laughs> Galactic wobble coordinators. <laughs> and they run from from 3 to 9, okay? And you go, "Okay, well, where's 1 and 2?" Well, it turns out that uh, since they're dealing with our third dimension here on planet Earth, it starts from the third dimension, it goes through nine, which is seven beings. Okay, so there are seven levels, the same as the number of levels in your chakras. Well, that's no coincidence. You can also consider three through nine the chakra cops, and they're the same beings that are represented, in my opinion, at least symbolically, in the Hindu religion of the gods who control your access to higher consciousness through these quantized nerve ganglia centers along your central spine, your chakras, okay? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, each one has a different wavelength and a frequency, and it turns out to be quite interesting. And, 
you know, when you when you when you really think about our whole whole graphic simulation, it all comes down to frequency. And so, anyway, so these beings are are can be summoned, and I do this in my audio book, and I also put it on the YouTube so you can get it. But uh, it goes something like. And let me just describe it without telling you. I can do it from memory, but I, what I want you to do is look at the elements. He basically calls forth these beings from the halls of Amente um, who are animating a frequency that's being emanated from the flower of life. This is some sort of crystal that is very, was very important and symbolized in ancient Egypt and several other cultures. So if you want to get into sacred geometry, look up the flower of life. And I highly recommend... Uh, Drunvalo Melchizedek's books, Volume 1 and 2, of the, uh, the Sacred Flower of Life s series that he was teaching okay, right. as a seminar. Right. Yeah, so, uh, he, so he starts out by saying, Fill thou my body with the spirit of life. Um, come, from the, come from the halls where the seven lords rule. You know, any, any, then he names their names, and each one has a specific function that's called out in the Emerald Tablets. And when you look at them, these are the functions that are correlated with the various attributes that are described in your chakra waking up. So if you're in your root chakra, you know more about fight and flight, and you know more red energy kind of stuff. Well, <laughs> well, that's Untanas for you, okay? So until you overcome your physical blockage and your spiritual lesson, you're not getting past Untanas. Well, this is exactly what the Hindus are teaching in, in their religion. Mm -hmm. So, there's, you know, there's these quantized places in your consciousness that uh, are, are controlled in the simulator. And Thoth talks a lot about overcoming that. So, he talks about two primary energies, your, your Ba and your Ka energy. And I don't want to get too far into this because we're, <laughs> we'll be uh, in the second book already, and I know we didn't allocate that kind of time. No worries. We're, we've he, got time, man. I'm here. The fundamental, the fundamental thing he teaches is if you can activate this certain energy, it will overcome the Ka energy which you were born into, meaning you're born with an energy field that enslaves you. And he calls this the illusion of Ka, or uh, some people call it the illusion of Maya, right? So right. This, this, the perception that physical objects in your simulator are real and they are the, the reality uh, is, not, is not the truth. And we can get really deep into the, uh, I, don't, I call it the, um, um, oh, what's it? I call it a uh, perception prison that's caused by uh, a, a, a skewing of that reality. And this can be done with uh, our, you know, the electromagnetic spectrum that we're sensitive to, whether it's through your eyes, your ears, or whatever. So all of a sudden, you, when you start thinking about the construct of an avatar, I went really deep into that in my second book to show electromagnetically and physically how they have used control systems and knowledge of your creation in order to keep you enslaved and keep you dumbed down. And Thoth, not to, not to get too far beyond this, but Thoth does teach about activating an additional energy that's in your body that's part of your design. And this is where we go back to Enki creating this first avatar going, well, did you make them just to be good slaves or is there, is there an upgrade path with, with these models? Well, it looks like there's an upgrade path for us that actually could lead all the way to... If you look at what some of the ascended masters have done on their spiritual path on this planet, uh, there's a whole range of what's available to us in, in this simulator. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Does that make mm -hmm. sense? Yeah, very much so. Okay, okay. So, I mean, I'm, I'm doing my best to keep up with everything. This is, again, this is so much information. And we, we just have to have you back on again to, to cover it. I, I want <laughs> to get, I want to get into what you'd say about 
the twin flame because I mean this this is talked about and a lot of people who kind of practice tantra they kind of talk about this and everywhere else that I've seen this it's kind of this woo woo there's no one has ever put really any science to the twin flame phenomena and you have in mm. this book so can you please just kind of go over you know what what you say the twin flame is and do you want me to do it you want me to do it in words or you want me to describe a math equation we might be a little too far along to do a math equation right now you let's tell me. do it let's do the words <laughs> okay so what 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 is it what what is it that uh potentially could be more beneficial from two people versus one well let's go let's go back to frequency again if you've got two frequencies call them tuning forks so people can visualize this they're they're emirate, they're creating a vibratory wave okay so it's even more visualized for you well imagine these two waves uh come close to each other okay or you direct them into a waveguide where they have to bounce into each other and there's no way to escape okay so they're going to intermix somehow some way well the science of those waves intermixing is called the superposition principle and it applies to multiple types of waves Okay, so the bottom line is if you have waves that are synchronized together, their peaks might add up and you get higher energy. Okay, whereas if they're out of phase, meaning 180 degrees out of phase, at the worst case, the peak and the trough might line up, and especially if they're the same frequency, then you would get basically a flat line because the peak and the valley would negate each other. Mm -hmm. That's how the principle works. Mm -hmm. Okay, so imagine you get two people that come together. They have chakras that are operating at various frequencies. If you take each chakra, assuming it's active, and you were to sum them all into a waveguide where they're all bouncing together, okay, they're not segregated in any way, they would create a superposition of some signal that would represent you. And I would, I would guarantee you three-letter agencies have the techniques and capabilities and telemetry equipment to look at you and determine exactly where you are in that process. Wow. If I could buy it, I guarantee you they could get it, <clears throat> okay? And, I, and I've postulated before that they've been able to do it from space. There were all these walking around blips of various colored lights that they're keeping an eye on. Yeah, you know? The yeah. red ones are okay because they're drinking beer in the bar and they're, and they're doing what we tell them to do. Whereas the, the blue and the indigo and the violet ones, they're a lot more problematic. Because they want to be sovereign citizens. They want to have freedom and all those kind of things that they know they're endowed by their creator to have. Right, so, <laughs> um, so I hope that kind of gave you a background on what happens when two frequencies together. Now let's take it to a, a man and a woman. They they may have a physical attraction to themselves just by using their eyes. Well, eventually, when they're in close proximity, they're also having an interaction with their energy bodies. And like I said, if they're on the same path and they're united together in one flesh and they're heading in the same spiritual direction, you might experience a, a mutual coupling of these two energies into a higher amplitude one where there's more energy available together than there is apart. Okay, and that is a common experience of, of people who say they found their soulmates. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So, so mathematically, I, uh, I went back previously when we're talking about the human energy body, I actually specified what that is. And all of a sudden, you see that the wavelength and the frequency are things that show up in that equation. Well, these are exactly what is needed to describe your chakra. Uh, because, you know, everything in the electromagnetic spectrum is composed of wavelength and frequency when multiplied equals the speed of light. 
So no matter which one you have, you can derive the other one, assuming the speed of light is you know, somewhat of a constant. It's such a big number that it, it dwarfs all the other scale, scalars that you end up using that equation. Well, and also, in you know, and there are certain practices in um, that also involve the breath and heightening your energy and doing yoga and all these other things that amplify the effect of your personal energy and that coupled with uh, your partner. Okay, so, uh, and it seems to me, uh, it, it looking at the archetypes, this was part of an archetypal design so that the male and the female energy, when they were... Unified in an individual also co caused very powerful effects. And this is the supposed synchronizing, the hemi-syncing of the left and right brains that happens at the corpus callosum. And for people that end up on a very advanced spiritual path, they describe this as something that happens. And this is described by the symbol of the caduceus, you know, with the wings and the knob on top and the twin serpents going down a pole. Mm -hmm. Well, those lateral... Wings represent the wings of Mercury, which are the lateral ventricles in your brain that all of a sudden start pumping cerebral spinal fluid the way they're supposed to, and it causes the brain and the pineal gland and everything to start working correctly. So, uh, so this energy, this energy is important in your body because it also couples with the endocrine system to um, affect various glands or your glandular system. For instance, the uh, the pineal gland is always talked about being coupled with the seventh chakra. Well, there's also the pituitary gland and uh, other glands that are correlated with your chakras. Okay, so and so if if your if your chakra system is waking up, then your glandular system is going to be doing well too. This coupling, when you so these when when you have a male and female, and in, in your book you talk about Hermes being the hermaphrodite, having both sexes, the Anunnaki splitting them apart to create this sort of disparate disparity between the sexes and this court sort of uh, conflicting energy you know unless until you find this sort of person that is on the same wavelength as you are has the same mission as you do which is to get off of this planet to exit the reality matrix <laughs> and so what would you say is is the type of feeling that a person would experience when they encounter someone they consider their twin flame? Well, how do you, how do you know uh, when you found a twin flame, essentially? Well, not only is there a feeling of heightened energy and uh, ecstasy in their presence, but also there's a, a lot of uh, synchronicities that happen in a kind of a mind meld, if you will. Like you feel what the other person feels, which is very bizarre, and oftentimes they're thinking uh, what they're thinking. So you're, you're very much on the same page or the same frequency. So that, that, you know, and if you can spend 24 7 with a person, go on travel with them and, and be with them, and you're still excited about it, and you, oftentimes that's because you're, you're on the same frequency. Otherwise, there's going to be. Some cacophony, some issues are going to come up, you know, and uh, it's it's a very special experience. I think it's uh, I think it's universal. I think it's available to everyone. So if you if you're on a certain frequency, and somebody else is on that frequency. It may you may not be completed yet in awakening your chakras, but at least together, you may be able to access the next chakra together just by your joining together. You know, being together. Now that doesn't mean you should you should go out and look for someone that's just going to complete you and that it's all done, mm -hmm. because there's uh, there's stuff you can do to your antenna to get there yourself, and I think that's part of taking responsibility of your relationship to the physical to the non-physical on this planet, and specifically I'm talking about your body 
in relation to, to gravity. And so that, that may be one we want to <laughs> wait for next time and we can get real deep into that. But it has a lot to do with your personal energy and your experience of energy. And energy really, to me, is quantized consciousness. Energy is consciousness. And in the religious group, when I was religious, <laughs> we would call it spirit. Energy and spirit are very much analogous terms to me. Yes, you can have various types of energy that may not be spiritual, but the essence of the human energy or the human soul is energy. Right. And it's and it's eternal. It's not something <laughs> it's not something that uh is finite. So no matter what avatar body you end up in, you're spirited and your your soul is eternal. And Th and Thoth teaches you that. It's very important. Now you think about that compared to dogmatic organizations that are telling you unless you do this and do that uh you know you won't go to heaven or whatever that means or have eternal life well that's a lie because you already have it all you got to do is take it now realize it amplify your energy and perform the highest level of avatar mission you were supposed to do in the simulator and graduate right and that's where we're at otherwise Keep coming back and keep going through enslavement over and over again. <laughs> so you what? I don't know about you, and I don't know how many past lives I've had. Once <laughs> is enough for me. Yeah, I get it. Down. I mean, I, you know, and and you go, you get into this in your book, and and there's God. We've just skipped through so much information. I feel a little bit bad for anyone, and and I suggest highly suggest that you know people pick up this new book, Seventh Planet Mercury Rising. And so they so they can get all this information. And uh, I mean, I just um, I mean, wow, man. I mean, I, it's incredible how much research, how much just how much you've poured into information you've poured into these two books, especially this latest book. And I mean, in closing, and and I, I mean, I I kind of want to just keep talking to you, but I mean, to kind of connect this back together. I mean, where are we now? What, I mean, like, where, where does humanity stand? I mean, are, are we, are we, go, are we experiencing ascension? Are we, are, is this happening now? I mean, are we leading towards that? I mean, are we going, heading towards another flood agenda, apocalypse type scenario? I mean, what is, what is your stance on that? And what is your opinion on that? Well, that, those are some pretty pretty heavy questions to be closing on. <laughs> I could do an entire show just on that. I'm sure. Um, I'll do I'll do it kind of quick, just so there's okay. kind of a, some continuity. As I mentioned, the Enkiites and Enlilites are, are opposed to each other. That may be by design in order to bring duality into our consciousness, because we don't understand a thing without its opposite. And you can test that on it, just about anything. You'll realize it's true. So one of them's playing the good good cop. The other one's playing the bad cop. One of them's fanning your your desires for war and destruction and power and greed and every and the, and the seven sins of, of you know that'll lead you to destruction and a repeated experience as a slave on this planet if you believe in reincarnation, which I do. Or you can play the game of the other one, which is to seek light, overcome your ego, purify your consciousness, and receive higher guidance from them to go as far as you can in this avatar path. So this is the good and light path. And they're going on simultaneously. Creation and destruction are always going on simultaneously. Okay? We are at the end of a zodiacal age of the house of Pisces going into Aquarius. Each time that happened, if you read my first book, you know the zodiacal changes were the term limits for the Anunnaki rulers on the council. 
Oftentimes, they seem to have it set up where you would ping-pong between an Enkiite and an Enolite on the council. Uh, if you had an Enolite, you were probably experiencing uh, a pretty rough ride. You know, think about going back to the mines, and this is the being who's the bureaucratic commander standing there going, well, let's just kill one and get them back to work after they've been in there 3,600 years. Okay. So there's that one and his kids, and a lot of them, they seem to play the same role. That's why I, I, I group them together. Not always, okay? Not always. And I, I shouldn't generalize too much. Um, <clears throat> so we're entering a new zodiacal house. I believe that one of Enki's sons, and I've said this all along, or Enki himself, it's him or his son is going to ascend to the rank of 50, Lord of this earth. That means his system of government and everything else will be in control. Okay, and I think eventually you're going to see a female on there, too. And they had six females and six males, by the way, so it was balanced. Um, I believe, based on everything that's been shown in the, um, in the expectations of a coming of a Messiah, this, this new age is supposed to last a thousand years. Well, listen, when you start reading this stuff and then correlating it with the Emerald Tablets and the Bible uh, and the Sumerian documents, you realize that one of those beings was in there that, who was giving a mission to help us out, and that was Ningshita. He was the one that threw us a line to raise our consciousness so you could reach an ascended master level, graduate from the Giza pyramid in the, in the king's chamber after <laughs> ingesting starfire gold and having an out-of-body experience, okay? He was waking <laughs> humans up in his mystery schools. They didn't, yeah. And Enel did not want that up in Vaughn where he was, okay? Now, those beings are still here, and I've said this many times before. I believe that Enlil, Yahweh, Jehovah is the God that's uh, in the United States. He's the God that they're referring to. He took over the Masonic Order as the God of that order in 1895 in England. His son, Ninurta, was his chief warrior. Um, wasn't shy about using nukes and flying around in craft and blowing stuff up. I give you uh, <laughs> Mohenjo-Daro, Sodom and Gomorrah, Babylon, several others, okay? Um, he, is, he is with his dad, and they're on the same team. Um, Enki's team is on the planet as well, and they're opposing whatever this premonition of a new world order is. You actually analyze what's going on, stealing sovereignty, enslaving people. This is the old world order. It's not new. There's nothing new about it, except the technology they're using to do it. <laughs> it's worse than... 1984, right? The stuff they're doing. Right. So there is a conflict of light and dark that was referred to as the Armageddon, the Bible. Well, I don't think that one, the writings of John, I don't think were completely accurate. But Thoth does tell you when we have the weapons of war, or weapons that are as powerful as lightning, and we traveling around the planet in aircraft, uh, there will be a great war. And it will be nuclear, and a third of the planet's going to die. And until, that, until we stop striving against our brother... Uh, he said they're not going to step in. But as soon as it reaches a certain stage, he said they're going to step in and uh, reestablish a new set of rules on this planet. But it does look like they're going to let us preliminarily do part of World War III. I don't know how far it'll go. But that's what mm -hmm. we're in for right now. And these, these entities that are using humans as pawns, listen, they're not open to negotiation. They're going to do what they're set to do, and, and there's nothing that's going to stop it. I'm here to tell you. So what, what Emerald Tablet 12 said about this coming destruction, uh, it's happening, and you can see it. And simultaneous with that, you know, there's, there's a lot of other things going on on the planet that are culminating into a great cat cataclysm. And it's part of the changing of uh, this, uh, this matrix into a new one.
and we can talk really deeply about what's going on from a higher level. And I, and I think we're going to need more time for that, though. Wow. Wow. I mean, I, I'm blown away, Gerald. I, I mean, all of this information is just, I mean, I, I, I'm, I mean, it's, there's one thing about just kind of reading your book and there's another kind of hearing it, you know, from you. And I, it just, I'm, I'm kind of in shock and, and, and just, just absorbing it all. It and is, it is, it is shocking. I know. So okay. it actually, you know, when, go ahead. So, I mean, I just, I, I, I just want to give you a chance to, you know, get your website out. I know that you're holding a Mexico City Symposium kind of field trip. When is that? Um, yeah, my website is GeraldClark77.com, G-E-R-A-L-D-C-L-A-R-K, 77.com. Um, <clears throat> we held a symposium in, at Chichen Itza uh, last September that went really great. We had a really uh, fantastic uh, set of conferences and or lectures and tours and things like that. So we had a good mix. Um, we decided to do the same thing in Mexico City uh, this May 21st, and it's going to be during a a celestial event, so we tried to get that in there as well. So uh, there'll be a lecture and then two days of tours to uh, Teotihuacan, where we're going to go see the Anunnaki connections to Ningxia, who was Quetzalcoatl. This is the big, <laughs> the big thing to find out about uh, the lost realm of Mexico and 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 this area is that they were significantly influenced by remnants of the Anunnaki that started the civilization. So we'll talk about that, show you a bunch of evidence for that. And we'll go out to Teotihuacan and see the pyramids that Quetzalcoatl was accredited with and some of the other things there. And look at some of the um, various architectures, what they were doing with gold and some other precious metal, uh, minerals there, which was very fascinating. It turned out to be a very important site. And also we're going to go out to establish the connection to the Olmecs, which uh, frequented Mexico in the area of Veracruz and Tabasco. And they, uh, they had a very interesting lineage that clearly was negroidal, connected back to Africa. And now that we've told the story, you understand that was Anki's domain, where his son Ningxia and eventually Marduk were there as well. And they were gods of Egypt as well. And if you haven't seen that new movie, The Gods of Egypt, have you seen it yet? No, I haven't. Oh, yeah, actually, once you hear this story, then see that. Some of it is really fantastic. And... Uh, uh, one of the players, Inanna, shows up in there pretty significantly. We didn't get to talk about her very much, even though she got the Indus Valley and had a lot to do with those religions in uh, India. Okay, So, GeraldClark77.com, May 21st through the 23rd, we're going to go to Mexico City, uh, go to the Anthropology Museum, see all the artifacts linked from the Atlan, who which was the source of the uh, all the seven tribes that ended up migrating down to Mexico. And some of them came from what looks like North America, so that's very fascinating. Um, absolute wonderful artifacts there. It's a world-class place if you've never seen it. And it'll help you establish this connection of the Olmecs, the Toltecs, the Aztecs, the Maya, and how they all related to each other, and, and who their gods were, and how this connects to the Anunnaki story. So I call it the Anunnaki Dominions of Mexico. And uh, hopefully uh, we'll get a good turnout this time, just like we did last time. Sounds great, man. Sign me up. Um, <laughs> good, Joe. Well, uh, we'd Thank love you. to have you. Thank you so much, man. Thank you so much for being here. I, I'm going to, after we end this recording, I'm, I'm going to try to get you to agree to a, a second episode here. But thank you so much for being here, man. I, I really, really, truly appreciate your presence and your work. Well, I appreciate you uh, pursuing it and holding me to the fire to get me back doing some radio shows. I'd kind of slacked off doing them for a while. I kind of got tired of doing them for after two years, just over and over and over. But uh, 
But uh, it, it's always good to have new enthusiasm and a different perspective, and I think you've got that, so I appreciate that. And for going through all the material that you did before uh, committing to doing the show, you, you sent some bullet points over, really, gr- really great talking points, and I think we have more to talk about. Yeah, for sure. All right, guys, this is The Human Experience. Thank you guys so much for listening. Pick up a copy of Seventh Planet, Mercury Rising, Gerald Clark. We are going to get out of here. Thank you guys so much for listening.